Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Bradley Gerald, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? Very good, John. Thank you. Yeah, busy week this week. Yeah, it has been very yeah, busy. Lots, lots to talk about in the news section. What, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about most of the things from Seven Days. Update on Sainsbury's uh, bid for home retail. Oh yeah. And yeah, well, lots of other stuff. Okay. Mark Robinson, how are you doing, Mark? Very well, thanks, John. And uh, yeah, busy week for you on the uh, oil and gas front this week. You're, it's kind of your swan song on the oil and gas front, well, isn't it, as well? yes, yes and no, I guess. Uh, Alex Newman will be taking over that beat. Uh, so yeah, BP results this week. Shell today, which wasn't in the magazine, and so some other observations from the oil and gas industry, which we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the main attraction this week, Simon Thompson. How are you, Simon? I'm very well, John. Yes, you've made it in past the uh, the breached sea defences of Dover. I certainly uh, have. Three hours later. Wow. Yeah. Luckily, you don't do it every day anymore. That's good for me. Indeed. Indeed. Not good for us, though. We miss the uh, pearls of wisdom that uh, oh, thank you, you. share in the office. But no, your pearls of wisdom are on display in this week's magazine, Bargain Shares. It's a 10,000-word epic, John. Was it ten- I didn't count. I did. I counted the pages, <laughs> not the words. There was a lot of a lot of pages. It's, um, it's, it's all quality. Kept me busy on my commute, put it that way. We have to be very careful though, that no one's looking over my shoulder because bargain shares is uh, very hot stuff, isn't it? It's, it's not only hot, but I think given the companies in this year's portfolio, it could be um, a very good one indeed. Okay, well, let's hope they're not famous last words. Right, let's, uh, let's come on to uh, Bradley and the news. Let's start uh, with seven days. What's been going on? Yeah, I guess um, Sainsbury's is um, one thing we've mentioned before in recent podcasts. Um, they did sort of follow through with their interest in Home Retail Group. Um, they announced last month, I think it was in January, they'd try to make a bid in uh, November and been rebuffed. And they've obviously come back with um, a, a better price this time. Um, they've actually got until the 23rd of February now to sort of hammer out the sort of real nitty gritty of the deal. But yeah, it's an interesting deal. There's a lot of moving parts, obviously, because Homebase, which is owned by Home retail group is going to get sold to an Australian company and then also um, you know there are lots of questions about what the real value is of Sainsbury's buying Argos I mean there's there's quite some sort of polar views on yes it's amazing because Argos has this fantastic distribution network now it offers same day delivery mm-hmm. but not for fresh food so um, but Sainsbury's does fresh food itself yeah I it mean, does it's, it's more interested in the non-food expertise here I guess one would imagine that's the case yeah I mean and, and they have kind of been doing a little trial I think it's in about 10 stores um, of having Argos sort of concession stands in Sainsbury's supermarket so you could argue the the potential for this deal was um, maybe visible um but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting um, element to uh, Sainsbury's business, and especially for us, because the Sainsbury's is a tip of the year for mm. us. Um, uh, this Obviously, we didn't know about the deal when we tipped it. We were already bullish on Sainsbury's compared to its peers. So um, yeah, this is quite interesting. We're looking at the tip updates page so far, so good on the Sainsbury's front. T- up 2% since the start of the year. That's not a bad effort, given what's been going on no, in the market. It's so, pretty so good. That suggests that, that you know, this has been generally well received. Yeah, it would do. And also, I guess it suggests as well that Sainsbury's kind of core business is pretty sound. It's not having the trouble that Tesco is. Morrison's is pulling out of convenience. It's kind of in a little bit, dare we say, it, of a sweet spot, I suppose. Again, compared to its peers, you know, it's um, relatively trouble free. And if this Argos um, deal goes well, then who knows what that could do to, to the balance sheet. So, What have the analysts been saying? 
there's been a mixed reviews i think i mean harriet's uh, been more sort of uh, knee deep in this than me but um as i said when we, we when we kind of first covered it there was a bit of confusion as to why sainsbury's would go for argos but i guess the the important thing is is that distribution capability and also what it will allow sainsbury's to do is while there's potentially a big um estate portfolio what it can probably do is get rid of some argos stores and put some like, smaller concessions in its larger stores yes so i think i guess from that point it makes sense because the cost uh, savings there, yeah, yeah i mean the, the whole big box supermarket thing is becoming a bit outdated now you know people are shopping you know in smaller quantities more often so these massive massive supermarkets that the likes of sainsbury's and tesco's have mm. are not obsolete but they're becoming less popular so i suppose if you're sainsbury's you've got a lot of the big supermarkets it makes sense to kind of carve out a bit of space within those for an Argos sort of stand and mm. kick, kick and collect type stuff is popular. Okay, well, I mean, Tesco's been trying similar things. It obviously has, you know, some of its larger stores have uh, its own, you know, sort of uh, ancillary brands in them. So you've got things like Giraffe in there and yeah. uh, uh, Harrison Hall, the coffee shops. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's uh, perhaps a change of uh, change of the wind uh, for the supermarket sector. I They're guess kind, they, of, yeah. kind of finding their feet after a few difficult years. Yeah, they, they you know, it's, it's no longer good enough to just be kind of a good supermarket. I guess you need another reason to pull customers in and like you say yeah, Tesco's are, you know there's one not far from our office which has got a burrito bar inside run by a company I mean I guess that sort of thing is going to be what they need to kind of pull customers in that, that need more sort of reasons to get people through the door okay we never go in the supermarket really we uh, we have it all delivered same so. yeah I haven't stepped foot in the supermarket for ages there you go uh, okay what else we got going on in uh, news I think another um, maybe sort of interesting one for our readers particularly is the um, focus of the um, FCA this week on um, CFD uh, trading platforms mm. that's contracts for difference so they are um, sort of financial derivatives that basically allow individual investors to trade the um, um, you know, moving share price of stocks so you can go long or short them but they are leveraged so they're, they're potentially very risky because you can lose more than you initially put down in, in the investment so the SCA has written a, a dear CEO letter to the industry after doing a sample of 10 uh, firms ranging in size that um, operate CFD trading platforms and just kind of said I suppose the, the simplest way to say it is that they really need to tighten up their their assessment of the types of people who are using their services so i guess this is partly response to the sort of plus 500 debacle that we had yeah uh, exactly i mean year. we mentioned that company in the small piece in seven days and they had to temporarily suspend some client accounts because the regulator wanted them to check and update and in some cases i think uh, i'm correct in saying get clients to sort of sign additional paperwork to make sure that they complied with various um, regulations and legislation so yeah i think it's kind of a a warning i guess to kind of yeah see if the operators from the regulator that they need to make sure that their um you know their operations are kind of watertight in terms of what they're what they need to do to make sure the people using them are it should be I yeah okay so you've got, you've got the money laundering thing but also the client suitability yeah Obviously, the, you know, this is interesting an interesting backdrop for uh, a flotation that's coming soon, which is CMC. Well, yeah, again, it is interesting, and I think it is becoming a, a bigger a bigger industry, and I guess maybe that's why the um, FCA sort of um, been looking at it more recently, because the rise of, I guess, things like pension freedoms, people getting cash out to maybe invest a bit more. I mean, you could argue CFDs would probably not be their first port of call, but perhaps the, the rise in the potential for there to be investments in CFDs has prompted the regulator to mm-hmm. think, we need to make sure that if this if there is a trend of increasing interest in this, then we need to make sure we're on top of it. Yeah, we, we wrote a feature a couple of weeks ago on how, how you actually short sell shares, you mm, know, and yeah. kind of trying to teach people how to use these things responsibly. I mean, you, you, you're not 
anti-CFD. I mean, there is a place for these kind of products, aren't there, Simon? There's a place for all types of investing. Basically, if you try and stop people short-selling shares, it's a bad idea. We've seen that in China, the ramifications of that. Leverage trading, it's sensible as long as you're sensible. And you can use them to hedge risk as well. Well, well, exactly. I remember back in the bear market of 2008, 2009, recommending readers of the Investors Chronicle take out a listed turbo, a CFD, in effect, with uh, Societe Generale to basically hedge their portfolios. And many readers actually wrote in later that year to say thank you because it saved them a fortune given what happened to share prices that year. So it's not just speculation, it's also hedging. Mm. So I guess some of these people would have had large portfolios, didn't want to liquidate them. Uh, in, in a turbulent market, given the cost and complexity involved in doing that, buy a product that actually hedges out any potential downside. And, you know, if, if the market weakens, your share price, your share portfolio might lose value, but your, your, your uh, turbo would be in the profit. That, that, that's exactly it. And you've got to bear in mind that many people who were fortunate enough or smart enough to actually buy into equities back in 2009 will have many shares that have doubled or even trebled in value. There are big thumping capital gains on those, which if you sell them, you're going to crystallise them. HMRC will want their share of that tax take. So an easy way to actually hedge off the risk, the investment risk, is CFDs. Okay. So, yeah, we shouldn't write these products off as uh, as mere tools for speculation. Absolutely not. Okay. The European Securities and Markets Authority has also had something to say this week about uh, a subject dear to our heart, which is closet trackers, I notice. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. They've done... Um, uh, well, they've they've looked at some data. I mean, I was actually kind of chatting um, via Twitter, actually, to um, Ben Seeger-Scott over at 20 Best Invest, who's a, a research analyst over there. And he was a bit kind of um, sceptical about uh, how ESMA has kind of gone about this and the data data set they've chosen but his reason was is they've only sort of really analyzed about 1200 funds i think out of a sample of two and a half thousand or something that's and the, that's a fair chunk yeah it is a fair chunk but only over about two years or okay. something as well so i guess you have to start somewhere which is what i said to him i mean you know you could argue if they've done five years somebody could say well why didn't you study 10 years um so i mean it, it's a start for them and i guess what they're kind of um well, closet tracking, as perhaps, as as you said, we've covered this various times before. Perhaps but we should explain what it what we yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's um, it's the suggestion that there are funds that are managed by active fund managers that effectively all they're really doing is pretty much tracking the benchmark which their fund is meant to actually outperform. So, but charging, but active charging active fees. fees. Yeah, of course. So basically, you're sort of paying for. You know, an expensive, um, you know, vigorous research, um, so that your the fund you invest in can only buy the stocks it really thinks it should do, and avoid the ones it thinks it should avoid, um, rather than just a, a tracker fund. But mm. in some cases, Esma seems to be suggesting actually there are quite a few instances whereby these active fund managers are are really doing little more than just just tracking an index virtually. Yeah, it was something that uh, our former personal finance editor Samora was uh, was very hot on. I mean she she was always on the lookout for this. Yeah. Always on the lookout for I this. Mean, it's because a- they were because I mean her view was that it's it's fairly rife in fact yeah it is and actually there's a fund manager I, I won't name him although he did say it at a, a round table a few years ago but he left um a big fund manager which is uh, linked to a life company i'll say that much and uh, now moved to a smaller boutique and he was actually he was fairly open about the fact that when he was at his bigger employer the the risk controls the compliance people there were a lot stricter if he took too much of an active bet he'd have someone on his shoulder saying I think you should wheel that back a bit kind of thing because 
they're they're a bit scared of there being too too wrong. Maybe, yeah. So, so so in fact, the compliance burden actually was forcing these some companies to be or these funds to become become all closet trackers. In a way, yeah. I wow. think I think that is the case. In some instances, obviously, we don't know that's the case everywhere. Mm. But um, yeah, obviously, if you're if you're paying for active management, you know, you want a fund manager who is going to really outperform and actually have conviction bets. I mean, in a way, it doesn't really matter if the manager you invest in really underperforms one year, as long as they're sticking to what they told you they would do, really. I mean, yeah. like a, a multi-manager who buys funds would, would say that, that even if you've got a manager who's really underperformed one year, as long as they're sticking to what they said they would do and their convictions in what they do is sound, that's fine. But yeah, obviously, you don't want to be paying a fee for that and getting an index return. No. I mean, we put together our top 100 funds every year. You know, we think there are some great fund managers out there, despite, you know, the, the questions that constantly uh, arise over the usefulness of, of the fund management industry. We Absolutely. think there's some good funds out there. There are. So uh, look at that. Uh, go back to the website. It's always there. Uh, <laughs> you can find the, the, the fund managers who are definitely not closet trackers. Absolutely. One last story from this page, I think, before we move on, yeah. is this nice little chart of the week that you've got here, which uh, you wrote, didn't you? Yeah, week? yeah. Um, it was a little release from um, Trevor Greetham, who works at Royal London Asset Management now. He's the head of multi-asset over there. Um, he used to work at Fidelity for quite a long time, actually, and kind of was, was very senior in their multi-asset uh, division as well. And he's composed this kind of like sentiment indicator, which he basically creates himself from various signals of the market management buying or selling that kind of thing he thinks that now for him is a uh, this indicator suggesting it's a pretty good time to buy european and japanese equities in particular mm-hmm. um so he's kind of um got his sentiment indicator versus the msci world which is kind of largely rising in the past few years it's dipped a little bit in the most recent months but the sentiment indicator is pretty bearish and uh, trevor's view is that um, actually, there's no need to be quite so bearish as people are being. So he's he's topping up on European and Japanese uh, stocks. Okay, well, uh, that chimes very neatly with my editorial this week because uh, I've been quite gloomy since the start of the year. Understandably, <laughs> the markets have been pretty grim, you know. And I've I tried my best to uh, to inject uh, some optimism into my my worldview this week. And I, you know, maybe I've timed it right. Maybe you have. Yeah, maybe you, I've timed. You tried it right. very hard as well. I, I, can, did, I, I really can, tried. I can feel it radiating <laughs> off the page. <laughs> I mean, Simon, you've written you wrote a big piece not in this week's mag the week before on. On bear market signals. That's uh, correct. Yes. I mean, your, what's your your general feel of the markets before we come onto bargain shares in a minute? I think there's probably more pain to come. The key take from that bear market signals piece I wrote was that when you have a long bull market like the one that we had between 2009 and 2015, and the extent of the rise in share prices, corrections given the huge rise we've had um, become deeper. And bear markets, when they happen, and of course, certain indices like the DAX and the Nikkei have gone into bear markets, those bear markets are deep ones as well. So my own take at the moment is that we'll see increased volatility over the next few months, possibly even a sideways movement looking two months out. Ultimately, it's going to be down to the central banks as to what is offered up to placate investors as to the depth of negative sentiment and you know that that's over the next couple of months how I see things panning out um I can't see a collapse in share prices from this point over the next few months um we've already had the damage done so we've had the shock to the system you know the FTSE 100 was down over 20 percent on the 20th of January from its uh, bull market high so people are getting over that readjusting their expectations uh, we've got the earnings season coming up Yes, we'll have some negative earnings from certain companies that are very cyclical, you know, the oil and gas industry, for example. But you'll have some positive news coming out too. 
So it's, it's a battle between the bull and the bears, as I see it over the next couple of months. Okay. Nothing conclusive, really. <laughs> no, not, no big upward moves. No, 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 no not, not sitting on the fence. I, I can't see the market running sharply, mm. uh, but I can't see severe downsides over the next few months, given we're going into the earnings season. Yeah. That's, also, a, that's a relief. Good, good. <laughs> um, I mean, actually, AstraZeneca had a profit warning today, which is a bit of a surprise, but uh, mm. but there you go. I mean, talking of oil, let's uh, let's quickly turn to, to Mark Robinson because you, you've uh, obviously covered BP's results this week, which were absolutely horrific. Yes, yeah, as expected, really. I don't think there was any uh, beat the um, well, they came up short of the earnings consensus, but uh, we had been expecting uh, the metrics to pull back. I guess the 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 main takeaway from uh, BP's results, and also I've just been looking at Shell today, is the fact that their reserves replacement uh, ratio is is dire at the moment. These companies have obviously uh, cut back their OPEX costs, but also CAPEX in, a, in an effort to uh, shore up cash flows and uh, underpin their dividends. But over the long, over the long run, that could have uh, serious implications for their production levels. Okay. I mean, there's another piece you've written uh, at the front of the magazine as well, which is more specifically about the North Sea uh, oil fields. Yeah, well, I was speaking to uh, one of the analysts at Wood McKenzie a little bit uh, earlier on this week. It's hardly surprising that they've uh, published this now. Um, I was speaking to Simon about this actually earlier on today, the fact that uh, many of the hedges that were in play in the North Sea have uh, come off now. And so uh, Wood McKenzie have been looking at the issue of decommissioning and they've come up with some uh, fairly scary numbers there. They say that as many as 140 fields are uh, at risk now over the next five years, even if oil returns to $85 a barrel. And there's no indication that that will happen, uh, certainly this year. And so even at uh, even a re- reduced rate, you could see 50 um, uh, companies coming off in, in fairly short, or 50 fields coming off in fairly short order as well. Um, the problems really, oh, actually, the, the reason this is going to happen is because uh, just obviously linked to the reduced assumptions on the oil price as well. But now it appears that uh, as intelligence has grown, um, industry operators have got a much better idea now on the likely decommissioning costs. And from about 2013 onwards, the government uh, introduced legislation which has uh, improved um, uh, the rebate uh, system. It's uh, not nearly as uh, generous as it is in Norwegian waters, of course. But uh, operators are now at least have some clarity on uh, the associated costs. So, um, you know, we, we, we could see that a trickle becoming a flood before too long. OK, but so the, there's a flip side to this, though, which is potentially this, this massive scale uh, decommissioning could actually breathe a bit of life back into oil services. Well, yes. Uh, I, I was speaking to uh, a couple of the principals from uh, Gulf Marine Services only uh, last week, and uh, that particular company uh, makes uh, floating uh, uh, rigs, uh, but they've just moved into the de- decommissioning space as well. And from what they were telling me, they, they see it as one of the real uh, growth areas in the future, not just uh, for the North Sea as well, but uh, uh, other waters. As, as and, and plus, they also mentioned uh, Iran, you know, that's... Uh, that's going to be another boon area for oil services too. Yeah, so th- so what we were talking about earlier was that Iran's uh, oil uh, production capability has essentially been underinvested for decades. Yeah, it's been degraded over the the, the last decade, uh, and they they're hoping to uh, increase. Well, they're hoping to bring another um, half a million barrels per day onto world markets and increase that over time to maybe three point eight to uh, four million barrels a day. Uh, but it's going to take a major investment to uh, get that up to speed. And plus, uh, like 
many of the main oil producing uh, countries, Iran has to import a lot of finished product because it has uh, it, it has fairly low refining capacity, and they're looking to build that up over time. Okay. Um, so that's it for oil, is it, Mark? You, uh... Well, uh, not not quite. Uh, as I mentioned, Alex Newman will be taking over that beat next week, but I'll, I'll always uh, have an interest. Yeah, well, what, you had one last hurrah in the tip section this week. That's typical right. oil, typical oil producer. Yes. You're a brave man. Yes, well, uh, Algae did say to, uh, to include a rather hefty caveat with it, uh, and anyone, uh, anyone who um, uh, follows the sector will, will know that... Uh, They've got to take the price into consideration. And, and the, the company that I've looked at uh, has obviously got um, a number of characteristics that we think it will see it through the other end, including a fairly uh, hefty balance sheet and, uh, and, its, ca- and its capex requirements aren't uh, overly onerous as well. Okay. Your new beat yes. that you're picking up is support services. Support services, yes. I'm taking them yeah, up so, for... So your first foray into support services was a massive profit warning. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Lakeland. Lake House. Lake Lake House, House, not Lakeland. That's a Lakeland, retailer yeah. of, well, of so kitchenware. I was thinking of the darts. <laughs> Lake, that's Lakeside. <laughs> oh, well done, here we go. <laughs> Which is also a shopping centre in Essex. But, uh, <laughs> Lake House. Yes, uh, Lake House. Well, uh, uh, not an auspicious start to no, this No, not at all. To this not at all. It might be something about me, who knows. <laughs> well, the, the difficulty that, that we've seen here, and I was talking to a few analysts uh, through the week there, is this, the, the idea of these uh, framework uh, contracts that they've entered into and, and the fact that uh, not, all of the, uh, not all of these companies have... Um, have any real clarity on, on the, the future level of revenues that these generate? It's only indicative rather than uh, in any way. You, there's no real delineation there. So, uh, Lakehouse have suffered as a result. So, so who are its customers? Well, it's um, housing association oh, clients right. uh, for, for the most part. And uh, again, you know, uh, low, well, housing associations under uh, pressure as well through legislation uh, coming in, which will uh, re- actually effectively require that their tenants' rents okay. will be reduced over the next four years. And so it's, um, it's feeding into that. Yeah, we've seen companies that support local government, local authority housing. That kind of, we've seen them run into trouble before over the years. It's, uh, it's a well-trodden path. Mark, things can only get better. Exactly. And also, another tip update of yours, which uh, is probably worth mentioning, because it's, uh, it's an absolute corker. So, uh, yes. from, from the ridiculous to the sublime, well, it's what's old, happened there? Our old friend uh, Syngenta, um, we've, we've covered this uh, company, or this group rather, in, in the magazine on several occasions, because it, um, it links into the, the long-term thematic view of people like Jim Rogers, that you know, agriculture over the long haul, it's a suitable avenue for a capital. And they've actually been, appro- they were approached last year by uh, a state-run Chinese uh, corporation, uh, Chem China. And Monsanto tried to buy them as well. Yeah, Monsanto uh, actually offered a, a slightly higher offer at the tail end of last year, but uh, that was uh, rejected. It was always going to be suspect that as well because of antitrust issues, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, they share a number of key markets in agriculture as well. So, I mean, that... Uh, over the long term, I don't think that would have been viable. Anyways. No, well, there's already worries. I mean, sort of uh, ethical worries about uh, Monsanto's Monsanto. dominance of certain certain uh, yeah. areas of agriculture. Yeah, and that actually applies to uh, Syngenta in areas like uh, fungicide as well. And I think they're 
two of the three largest uh, proprietary seed manufacturers as well. I might yeah, be that's, that's generally the, the thing, the problem area that most people but I mean, look at. In a sense, it's not uh, surprising that, um, uh, that China has come in for this uh, uh, strategic move, really, because uh, when you look at the, the, the agricultural sector in China, it's still, um, it's still under-mechanised, for one thing, and plus uh, farming method, methodology is, uh, is outdated uh, in m- many instances. And plus, you've got this dynamic now where a lot of uh, following the British and European example as well where you've got uh, farm labourers agricultural workers moving to the cities for higher wages and this is um, this has led to a, a shortage of labour and so the only way around this is by mechanisation and improved technology and uh, that's exactly what the Chinese are doing. Okay so uh, you only tipped that in September, uh, December yeah, I mean, and it's up 17% yeah, it, yeah well I mean we've we had an eye on it for, for, for years, actually, just because of that, uh, that, that thematic angle that I mentioned earlier on. Okay. Well, no, good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, while we're on the subject, then, of tips, let's turn to bargain shares, Simon, because uh, it's, it's a mammoth effort, again, uh, 17th year, isn't it? It's the 17th, 17th year. year. Wow. It's an institution. I think so. <laughs> um, so, Simon, let's talk bargain shares. So, um, what exactly is it? I mean, what, what are we actually doing? Here. It's actually quite simple. The portfolio is based on the writings of Benjamin Graham. He was mm-hmm. the grandfather of value investing. Um, he was a professor at Columbia Business School. One of his star pupils was one Warren, Warren Buffett, Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway fame. He's basically renowned as the greatest value investor of all time, Warren Buffett. But th- this, this portfolio is based on the writings of Benjamin Graham, his seminal book, The Intelligent Investor, 1949, a must-read for any any investor. And basically what's, what I try and do, and following the writings of this book, is look for companies out of favour because of some unsatisfactory development of a temporary nature. So I'm able to buy the assets of that company well below their true worth. I've tweaked the, the criteria that Benjamin Graham followed in his book, and basically what I'm looking for is to be able to buy the fixed assets of a company for nothing. I want those in the price for free. And if I can actually find companies with solid balance sheets, decent trading prospects over the long term, in time, the value of those companies will return back to their intrinsic value. And that's why this portfolio has done so well over the years. Okay, so tell us how well it has done. I mean, it, ha- it has been mostly good. I mean, there's been a couple of years where it's not, not really it's, fired on all cylinders, but, but mostly good. It's beaten the, over one year term for each portfolio, it's beaten the FTSE All Share Index against which we benchmark it. 14 times out of 17 years. It's produced a one-year return of over 21% on average. And how does that compare with the FTSE All Share Index? 3%. Mm. That's the average return over that 17-year period. See, that, that's what we're looking for in active management, isn't it, Bradley? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, maybe uh, there are some fund managers out there willing to read this article. <laughs> Absolutely. As we said, you know, sometimes it's not going to work. Sometimes... For whatever reason, small caps fall out of favour. It's generally small caps you look at, isn't it? I, I find the value in small cap companies simply they're under-researched, shunned sometimes by fund managers. As a result, I can actually find rich pickings in that sector. Yeah, you know, when, you, when you've been doing your research this year, the market is obviously somewhat turbulent. How has that affected your approach this year? Have you kind of have you tweaked it anyway, or do you, do you feel it's just offered up you know more opportunities than than there would otherwise have been? It's not only offered up more opportunities, and what, what's actually interesting is that the bargain share portfolio does incredibly well 
either at the start of bull markets, so the 2009-2010 portfolios both produced returns of 50% plus. It also does well after periods of an increase in risk aversion. So in 2011, when we had the Greek crisis and markets were falling out of bed, well, the 2012 portfolio, early 2012, I had rich pickings in the small cap field, and that portfolio did incredibly well. And it was the same in 2013 as well. So this year, having run the scan of 1,700 fully listed companies and targeted small cap companies in particular, I've actually found an incredibly high number of value opportunities that fit my criteria and also, realistically, I'm confident of producing a decent return for long-term investors. I have tweaked the criteria. I've only looked for cash-rich companies. So all these balance sheets, I'm not only able to buy these companies below their net asset value, but a chunk of that net asset value is cash. Margin of safety. It's a huge margin of safety, John. Yes, yeah, what we want. So give us a flavour of, uh, of what you found this year. I think uh, even oil and gas has made its way into your portfolio as well. There's, there's one company that obviously won't give the name, but um, its market capitalisation is £63 million. It's got £84 million of cash on its balance sheet. It's got another £45 million of cash, which will be coming shortly onto its um, balance sheet. So it's basically trading at half its cash level. It's also got a very valuable interest following a farm-out deal in North Africa. To me, that absolutely shouts value. Mm, Absolutely. Quite a lot of investment companies on here. The interesting thing there is that I found cash-rich investment companies. So once I actually strip out the cash from the market capitalisation of the companies, then look at the assets that are being held, the investments held by those investment companies... Those investments, in some cases, are being attributed values as little as 20 pence in the pound. And these are, these are decent little portfolios of generally smaller companies. Some of them are listed smaller companies that they're investing in as well. The, the, these companies aren't dogs. These companies have actually produced the goods year after year after year, but it's just a spike in risk aversion in the last few months that has caused these companies to fall out of favour. But to me, if you can actually buy a pound of assets for 70 pence or 60 pence, and 50 pence of those assets is already in cash, it doesn't take a genius to work out that over the long term, the outcome for your investment is probably going to be favourable. Absolutely, absolutely. So probably never a better time to have a look at bargain shares then, really. I'm actually, in terms of this portfolio this year, at this point in time, I'm actually quite confident that these companies will do, do rather well. Yeah, good. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Good stuff. Right. Bradley, I'm conscious we haven't really even got through all the news. I mean, was there anything else that really struck you uh, in the news section this week? Um, I guess one thing I've mentioned is the um, the the lady who's going to be the new chief executive over at M&G, which is the fund management arm of uh, Insurer Prudential. Um, she's currently the um, chief investment officer at Aberdeen. So um, you might think, oh, she might be pleased to be leaving Aberdeen with all its sort of travails with emerging markets and that sort of thing. But actually, M&G has its own challenges. It's um, obviously very well known for fixed income and there's been a lot of outflows from fixed income i mean its own kind of flagship fund optimal income was 24.6 billion in size this time last year it's now 16.2 billion Mm. so it's still a big beast but not as big as it was so it'd be interesting to see how how Anne does over there i think the general consensus is that it was probably an amicable kind of split from aberdeen there's nothing sort of untoward the job came up and she was a strong candidate and it's a chance for her to lead a lead a fund manager this was was written by emma 
Powell, who's uh, who's taken over that financial beat. Yeah, she a is. A bit of a reshuffle. Over. It is. Yeah, we've had a reshuffle here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, she's taking over from Ian Smith. So um, yeah, so that was an interesting piece, and I guess it's worth the uh, listeners checking out the new Spotlight piece as well, just to get an idea of what a Google or Alphabet, as it's really known now, is. Uh, is it? What I don't doing? know what it's known as anymore. I can't keep up. Some people call it Google. It's ticker is still Google. Yeah, <laughs> it's changed its name to Alphabet. The ticker's still Google, but Alphabet is effectively, I suppose, that the, the parents kind of right. name, if you will, and then although the Google bit is the, still the dominant part, but um, yeah, they kind of shone a bit of a light on some of their more. Um, interesting projects i suppose so the moonshots they call them that's what they call them right and what is this sort of stuff things like driverless cars and um i think one thing is even contact lenses that tell how much like how your blood sugar is doing and stuff like that i mean really really quite sci-fi stuff yeah driverless cars i my children are not old enough to drive yet and i said uh, they were saying oh daddy one day i'm gonna get a car and uh, it's like well by the time you get to drive girls they're all gonna be driverless they're absolutely <laughs> mortified <laughs> 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 Make getting a driving license a lot easier. <laughs> it certainly will, but I think they they watch my wife driving and think, yeah, I love some of that. It's a bit of a, a bit of a girl racer, my wife. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, plenty of results in the magazine this week as well. I don't know if you picked any up, did you, Bradley? Yeah, I don't think I did this week. It's, um, Lazy. it's busy, though. I know. Yeah, I just just sitting around my feet up. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had Hargis Lansdowne, which was which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, doing, obviously doing very a... well in terms of scooping up assets under management yeah I mean it's a big beast in the broken world I mean it's it's yeah, it's not going anywhere anytime soon that's for sure but um, it's having to deal with sort of changes in the pensions landscape but um, yeah it's doing very well I think it hit record assets under administration so yeah Convivial I thought you'd have Convivial oh, no. not guilty retail, not guilty no uh, booze they, they seem to be doing okay Ocado not so well just goes to show life is just as tough online as it is uh, is in the aisles for the supermarket industry absolutely Diageo there you go yeah, oh, I've got guilty. one Diageo I've wondered if that was this week or last. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, think it was Diageo, the back end of last week and crept into this week's. It mag. did, yeah. Interesting one again. Um, people might favour it for its emerging markets exposure, but um, it's got quite a big chunk of business in Nigeria, I think, um, from memory. And obviously, the currency in Nigeria is not doing well at all. Mm. And um, the country actually went to the World Bank uh, start of this week or end of last week um, for the potential for some emergency loans. So it might not be the best uh, country to have exposure to for yeah. the moment. Well, you uh, you picked up Pisa Cousins a couple of weeks back as well, which yes. you downgraded. Yeah. And that, that's a Nigerian story as well. Yeah, yeah. Real, real big problems in that in that country, um, yeah. which I picked up on years ago when I when I tried to sell them. If you, you might remember that, Simon. I certainly do, John. It didn't work out so well. No. <laughs> that tip is in the money now, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, never mind. As I as I say in my editorial, my success rate on buys was always better than sells. Sells selling selling shares is hard work. You know, shorting is a difficult business. Getting sales right is hard. Well, notwithstanding the fact that the majority of time markets are actually in bull markets. Yeah. Bull markets last longer than bear markets. So to actually short shares you're running against the tide most most of the time. Absolutely, which is uh, one of the reasons why you should be optimistic rather than uh, pessimistic. Glass half full rather than half empty. Always am. My glass is pretty much always empty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that will do for this week. We've discussed plenty there. Lots more results, actually. Sky as well is another big one. Bargain shares is obviously the main feature, but uh, we've got John Barron this week and his investment trust portfolio. 
Emma Ajimang has looked at a couple of new entrants to the broking scene. So we've got the big, you know, big old Hargreaves lands down at one end, but these guys that Emma's looked at this week uh, are, are very interesting. A couple of companies who are offering broking at ridiculously cheap rates. And we've had readers asking us, you know, is this kosher? Is this for real? We've met them. We've spoken to them. We've got De Hero and Idealing. And, you know, they're both doing some really interesting things in this space, using technology to really bring some disruption to broking and the, and the amounts that brokers charge. So definitely worth a look at that article if you're interested in that you're sacrificing service for price uh, potentially Hargreaves obviously provide a lot of service these guys will well, it's, it's, it's a stripped down version so uh, yeah definitely worth a look there we've got to take to focus on the miserable world of mining <laughs> and uh, plenty in the personal finance and fun section uh, which they will be talking about on their podcast so thank you everybody thank you bradley thank you mark thank you simon we will catch up again next week pick up the magazine bargain shares simon thompson's stellar picks for uh, 2016 4.70 all good news agents see you soon <laughs>